0: So we're going to pick up in Matthew 26 and 57. They should be up on the screen, but we're we're in Matthew 26. I'm just going to read the first um, 11 verses or so to start. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face, and they struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? There's been, as I was reading this week, there's been so much research done into the, the judicial system of the Jews at this time, how this court system should have played out, the authority that they had, and and the laws that they had in place. To sum it all up, I did a lot of skimming. Uh, but to sum it all up, basically in this trial that we see, they break almost every single one of their laws that they had set in place for a fair trial. Uh, they, they tried him at night instead of during the day. They tried him at that, the home of the high priest instead of at the, in the public temple. They, they were not asking him questions. They were accusing him. The, the list goes on and on. But we see that they're going exactly against everything that they've been so concerned about in the past. We've seen all through Matthew, they've been so concerned with keeping the external actions of the law. That they were so worried about the external actions that they were missing the actual intent or the purpose that the law was in place in the first place. But you see that it's, it's not a real trial. It's, it's all a big sham. It's all a big wash because they, they had no intention of giving him a real trial. Verse 59 specifically says that they were seeking false testimony against Jesus. They were specifically looking for people that would not be telling the truth just to get him condemned. But they're not even doing very well at that. People can't even line up on their stories to actually condemn Jesus. That there's been multiple false witnesses come forward. But that they're not even doing that well. But again, they're, they're, they're missing out on the law that they that there's. Say state that they're holding to. Um, In Deuteronomy, there were specific laws in place for witnesses and to specifically tell the truth. Uh, I'm just going to read. This is Deuteronomy 19, 18 through 19. Um, This was a law specifically on telling the truth in court. It says, The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness, he has accused his brother and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Like even in their all this external following the law, even as they've been so concerned about this and calling out Jesus when he hasn't done the right things um, externally, in their opinion, they've been very concerned with following the law. And here they're throwing all that aside because they're more concerned with getting Jesus out, getting him away, but that they're not so concerned with the law anymore. But it says that they finally lay, they land an accusation on him. Um, the quote they use, they misquote him a little bit. They use it out of context. But that comes from John 2. And basically what Jesus said in response to them asking for a sign, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And this is what the, these two witnesses use. Use it out of context a little bit. Don't, don't use it with all the surrounding things that Jesus had said. But Jesus doesn't correct them. Jesus doesn't deny it. He doesn't make excuses. He just takes it. He doesn't argue. He just takes it. We said last week, we talked about Isaiah 53 quite a bit. That like a lamb before its shears who is silent, that he opened not his mouth. That he wasn't arguing. He was taking it. This, this, This foreshadowing that Jesus was about to, in a couple weeks in our time, Less than 24 hours in his time. But was about to take on so much more. Was about to take on the sins of man. And we said last week that he not only just took on sins, but it says he became sin. Taking on what our sin deserved. What the sins of man deserved. But after this accusation that we see the high priest say, I adjure you by the living God. Are you telling the truth? It, it, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? Is that who you're claiming to be? And he doesn't directly answer them, but he indirectly answers them in a very powerful way. I don't want this on the screen. He said, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's saying, the next time you see me, I'm coming back not as this suffering servant, not as this this meek lamb that is being silent, but I'm coming back as ruling king this time. I'm coming back with justice, with perfect justice that he's not getting from them. But he uses the the, the title for himself, son of man, specifically from the book of Daniel that's referring to the divine Messiah that is to come. And, and Jesus is going to suffer much at the hands of sin, not, not not his sin, but the sins of man, but was in this moment was perfectly obedient to his father, was perfectly obedient to the will of God that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, that it was the will of God for this to happen, that this was salvation for man for Jesus to become the pastor of the Lamb. But see, he's saying that when he returns, when he comes back, after sitting on the right hand of power, after sitting on the right hand of God, he's going to come back with perfect justice. The justice that he's not getting right now, but perfect justice that means that each and every person is either receiving what they deserve because of their sin or receiving perfect righteousness that is given to those that are perfectly justified, perfectly made a right with their relation with God because of Jesus. It's one or the other there. But this is why he was dying for the sins of man, to give glory to God. It was all for God's glory. Because men, was, men were going to continue to sin. Men were going to continue to do awful, wicked things. We're going to see some of that in a little bit. But we're going to see two drastically, radically different responses to this to Jesus, to what he has done. We're going to see two different responses to that. And we're going to kind of treat this separately, but also in kind of big picture as well. We're going to go ahead and read um, this account. I'm going to finish off chapter 26 here um, in verse 69 through 75. We're going to see the first of these responses. we see that Jesus has been led to the the home of the high priest. Uh, That since from the garden he's been led there. Peter's obviously been following along at a distance also with them. And there's much that we've talked about even as we've gone through Matthew. we've, We've talked a lot about Peter's shortcomings. Peter's failure, his very quick to speak tongue, his lack of faith that we saw. There's been a lot that we've talked about with Peter that's usually in a, well don't do that. Like, you use it in a negative sense. But he's followed Jesus into the courtyard. The same guy that has pulled a sword we saw last week and started trying to slice people. And the same one has followed Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Although he's about to fail, he's about to, be, he's about to deny Jesus. Like his, We see some of his heart here that he wanted to follow. He wanted to do the right thing. His heart was in the right spot. He was weak. He was going to mess up. But it's not just a don't do this, don't do this. Like, he was trying to follow. And we see that three different times Peter is going to be asked. Like, you're one, not asked, but told, you were one of those guys. You're one of those guys that we saw with Jesus. And in three different ways, Peter says, no. Like, I don't know the man. That, that's not me. We saw that he went from. As we established last week that Peter had been the guy that had declared Jesus to be the Christ. That when others were saying that he was a prophet or he was this person or this person, Peter had been the one to say, you are the Christ, you are the son of God, you are the Messiah. Last week he said, I'm not going to desert you, I'm not going to fall away, even if everybody else does, I'm not going to fall away. And this week, instead of declaring that he is the Messiah, he's the son of God, we see... Peter referred to him as the man, just the man. It's really a kind of, it's a sobering testimony to the weakness of the flesh. That's what Jesus already told him. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We saw that two weeks ago, I think. So like, you're going to want to do the right thing, but your flesh is weak. Peter did not have it in him to be strong. It wasn't something that he could muster up. This is what I was hoping to establish last week that we are weak, we are needy, that we alone don't hold the power to just try harder to be faithful. We don't try harder to do the right thing. But when when potential persecution, when difficulty came, Peter finally came to a place where he didn't realize that, where he did realize that he did not have the strength to do the right thing or to, to, to perfectly obey. as the rooster crows, that he remembers what Jesus had said, that you will deny me. And it says he went out and wept bitterly. And in this moment, we're seeing something that's going to shape Peter for the rest of his life. We see Peter drastically different after this. Drastically different after he's driven out to weep bitterly, it says. Luke 22 actually adds, Matthew doesn't include this part, but Luke 22 says that at that same moment, Jesus actually looked over at him. We could give a whole background of what this courtyard probably looked like and where Jesus was. I don't know that's important. But in the moment, Luke says that Jesus looks over at him. And in that moment, Jesus Peter understands his sin. But not only is he met with the reality of his sin, but that his his sin was literally in the face of Jesus. We said last week we set up the, the different kind of different the different kind of differences that that works. Right? Um, but we saw that in, we read in Romans seven, Paul after saying like he's talking about the struggle of sin, he says I can't do this, I can't overcome this. What does Paul say? Wretched man am I. I can't do this. Wretched man am I. Who's going to save me? And we didn't see that from Peter last week. We didn't see that at all. He was saying, no, I'm strong enough. No, I'm not going to betray you. No, I'm not going to fall away. I've got it. I'm good. I've got the strength to do that. But this week, we see Peter get there. Peter's to a place where he understands his weakness because he's rejected Jesus just as Jesus said he was going to. But he understands the severity of his sin. And I think that's something that we, as the church, we as followers of Jesus, I think, downplay sometimes. Maybe not intentionally, but don't understand the severity of our sin. Don't understand what our sin is or what that sin deserves. Peter understood this. Peter's in the presence of Jesus. And he understood this. He got this. He went out and wept bitterly. But I think sometimes we can move on very quickly. And as followers of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. Like Our sin is no different than Peter's. Our sin is no less severe. That any sin is just a rejection of God. It's a rejection of His ways. is a rejection of obedience Then I'm not going to obey. It's just as severe. And Peter, like with, a, with an awareness of this, with an overwhelming awareness of this, goes away weeping. And this is going to be the last time Peter's mentioned in Matthew, mentioned by name. The next time we're going to see him mentioned by, by name is it going to be in Acts. So the, other, so the other gospels mention a couple different things, but in Matthew, we're not going to see him again until Acts, where he, the next time we see him, he's going to be preaching, boldly preaching the resurrected Christ on the day of Pentecost to a whole group of people. So Peter's story is not going to end with this leaving bitter, the bitter weeping, deep in his sin being driven to an understanding of this in the face of Jesus, but that's not where his story is going to end. And we're going to come back to Peter in a second. We're going to come back to to Peter in his sin, in the midst of his sin. I want want to read the next section before we get there. We're going to move into 27, 1 through 10. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of the silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been, has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom the price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me." At this point, the, the Jewish trial is, is pretty much over. The, the Jewish trial of Jesus is basically done. In this time, the, the, Roman, the Rome was the ruling power. But they had given the Jews much um, judicial power. They, could, they did most of their own cases, but Rome alone held the power over the death sentence. And Rome alone could actually perform executions. So they, they, they meet again in the morning. They try to do it. Um, as the right things. They meant the morning to make it more official since their first trial was um, done completely against their law. But then they lead him away to Pilate to begin the the Roman trial, the the other side of this. And I'm not going to get too much into that. Tanner will get there next week. We'll see um, Jesus before Pilate. But what we see is one of the most tragic things in all of the Bible. One of the most tragic Experiences in the Bible. A man that had been with Jesus about three years, rejecting Jesus, giving him over for 30 pieces of silver, betraying him. We see him feeling bad about this. We see him regretting what he had done and understanding that he had done wrong. But then in his guilt, ending his life. I'm not going to get too much into the prophecy and where it was at, but all of this still is exactly what's been prophesied about in the Old Testament. The the prophets had already said that the 30 30 pieces of silver were going to be thrown into the temple, into the house of the Lord, to the potter. And that's what we see, that, that Judas goes, feels bad, they won't take his money back. He throws it back anyways into the temple. They take it. Now they're concerned about following the law and the money they've given for blood money, they don't want to put that back in the treasury. They're, they're so deep in their hypocrisy, now all of a sudden they're worried about the law. But they take it and buy a, a potter's field. But we see that the very two very different responses to Jesus. We see two people both deep in their sin. We've seen Peter, we've seen Judas both sinning, both rejecting their allegiance to Jesus, both sorrowful, both feeling guilt, both going away, guilty of sin. Like, those define both Peter and Judas. The same. But what is the difference? Why do we see Peter go on to proclaim the name of jesus boldly in acts and we see peter in his li- or judas in his life boy what what, what happened what is the difference <coughs> very different paths first of all like an awareness of our sin an awareness of our sin is not what saves us Knowing that we sinned, Judas, Judas said, what do you say? "I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, at least in front of the chief priests, at least in front of the elders. He was admitting he had sinned. He knew he had done wrong. He felt guilty over this. He knew he was guilty. And understanding of our sin is, is a huge step in, in understanding salvation, understanding grace and understanding forgiveness. but it's not the step. It's not the only thing that, that has to occur here. Because Judas knew he did wrong. I'd say that if we don't ever get to a place understanding our sinfulness, then, there, then salvation is not there. If we don't understand that we're sinners, I don't think we understand grace. If you don't understand you're a sinner, you don't understand grace. The second, like even remorse, even guilt, even regret over our sin is also not salvation. Judas was guilty. Judas knew that. Judas, unable to deal with his guilt, hung himself. Could not handle it. Ended his life. Could not handle the guilt of knowing that he was a sinner. Of what he had done to Jesus. And like, if we are following a gospel, it says you have to continue to do better. You have to continue to do the right things. You have to try harder. If that is what we're trying to do, then this is, this is our cycle. This is our unable to get out of this because dealing with sin, understanding that we're a sinner. You feel bad. You feel regret. You go, I, I never want to do that. As sinners, we're going to sin. We're going to feel bad. We're going to regret. We're going to try harder. You're going to sin again. You're going to regret it. You're going to be remorseful. You're going to try harder. That is continually a cycle that happens over and over and over again. Like Judas never got past this. Judas never got to a place of getting past this guilt. Like feeling guilty. We should feel guilty. We are guilty. We have sinned. We do sin. But that alone is not salvation. That alone is not understanding grace. Judas had heard this. Judas had heard him preach. Jesus teach, preach, live out the gospel for three years. But he never understood forgiveness. He never understood what Jesus was ultimately teaching like there's only one place that, that Judas could have gone here to be restored. There's only one person who could have restored Jesus. Judas. Answer my question. There's only one play, person who could have restored him. And we're going to see the difference between Peter and Judas. Because Jesus is the one who restores, Jesus is the one that pursues us. And that's what we're going to see that repentance and forgiveness. That's only Jesus. That's only through Jesus. That's only by Jesus. Unfortunately, we don't get to see the details of Peter between leaving here weeping and acts. We don't see a lot of that. We don't see the the detailed, detail by detail explanation of his repentance, of his restoration. But we know it, we know it happened. We know that, that there was true repentance there. Like what we do know, that he ended up back with a community of disciples. We know he ended up back in the upper room with the other disciples. That he was there when when Jesus would appear to them. We know that he was with the disciples when Jesus would give them the the great commission to go and make disciples. Spoiler alert, that's Matthew 28. But we know that he ended up back there. We don't know all the details. I don't know. I would love to say, oh, it makes a great story that he went back to the disciples, broken over his sin, and they helped point him back to Jesus. I don't know. Was he he truly repentant and restored and and it worked all that out? And they went back to the disciples? I, I don't know. But we do know that he ended up back with the disciples. He ended up back with his community. I want to pause for just a second because there is a difference. I'm not calling the disciples a church. I'm not trying to equate the two. But I think the role of the local church here cannot be passed over. I think this is a huge reason why Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews would say, to the, the Christians that he's writing to that have been scattered. Don't neglect to meet together. Don't neglect to meet together. Because Judas, in deep in his sin, just like Peter, was driven to isolation. And isolation is where guilt and shame grows and grows and grows. Whereas Peter ended up back with community, back with the other disciples. It's like it's it's so hard to hear. People say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I've been saved. But I want nothing to do with the church. I I don't want a local church. It's messy. It's hard. There's too many sinners there. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Can't agree more. But that's the thing. Like, I need the church. I need the church. Like, I need someone to point me back to the gospel when I get distracted. I need someone to Point out sin in my life if it is there. Both of those have happened. Not just call me out for sin, but point me back to Jesus. Like that is a huge role of the church, pointing one another back to Jesus. Because that's what Judas didn't get. Judas, he went, he confessed his sins to the high priest and their or to the priests and elders and their wash or whatever they were running there. If everything was going, if they were obedient, if they were in obedience, there, they would have pointed him. Don't worry, just repent to us. That's between you and God, and they would have pursued Jesus together. But that is the local church. Like that's what we should be. But not just being at the church, not just being in the four walls. You can be here with your your walls so high trying to hide sin, trying to hide shame, trying to hide your own struggles, that you're afraid to let anybody else in. But I guarantee you that as soon as you really deeply ingrain yourself, you're going to find out that there's people here, every single other person here is deeply in their sin too, is struggling in their sin too, is having the same sin problem as you. But that we're all in this together again I'm not trying to equate the group of disciples as the church but I think this is so important like I've said this a lot recently to a lot of different people and I, and I truly mean it 100% honestly that we as the church the local expression of the church are in this together not, as, not just as individuals, but as a community, as the body. Paul would say we're one body, one, in it together. And I believe that the church is built, it was, was created by Jesus to rejoice with one another, to weep with one another, to correct one another, rebuke one another, sharpen one another, and ultimately pursue Jesus with one another, to do this together. To point one another to Jesus. And I don't know if you felt this yet, but it's hard. It's messy. It's difficult. Sin is messy. Sin is difficult. Living in a broken world surrounded by other sinners is absolutely difficult. But in that, we have the beautiful opportunity to point one another back to the gospel. There is undoubtedly people who are struggling with the shame of their sin and we're able to point them back to the gospel, to point them back to Jesus and walk through that as a church, as a whole, as one. If you remember last week, what, what again, what I was really trying to say was that we are all weak, needy, and desperate in Jesus there is nothing else that you took. We are weak, needy, in desperate need of Jesus who is not weak, who is not needy, but perfect. And the answer for everything that we need. And that we would be best served to not try to hide our weakness, to not try to hide our shame, to not try to hide our struggles from ourselves, from others, from the world. We said that in our weakness, Jesus is is has shown us strong, not us, but Jesus. That, that he pursues us, that he restores us. We saw it last week as he was telling the disciples, you all are going to betray me. You all are going to run. You all are going to deny me. You're all going to flee. But even in that same moment, he said, but I'm going to go before you to Galilee. I'm going to restore the relationship. I'm going to come after you even when you run. And that's not based on our goodness. It's not based on our deserving of this. It's not based on anything that we've done. Because if that was the case, Peter just showed himself as not worthy of that. Peter just showed himself as totally undeserving of Jesus pursuing him. But Jesus does that. He pursues us. when we're unable to even realize our, our desperate need. The severity of our sin deserved, like perfect justice needed to happen because our sin deserved death. The perfect justice that required a perfect lamb to die as a sacrifice. Isaiah 53. Justice that required a perfect lamb carry our sorrows, bear our griefs, a land that was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Like, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. The lamb that was tried unjustly, was silent before his killers, did not open his mouth It's Jesus. But Jesus, even when we sin, even when we are deep in that, it's him that we trust to restore us. Not that we restore ourselves, we trust him to restore us. Not because we deserve it, but because he pursued us, that he loved us and pursues us. That's just the beauty of the gospel that that I've been so stuck on this week in an awesome way. Is that in this trial, in this, Jesus was receiving exactly opposite of what he deserved. Exactly opposite. His trial, his death, his crucifixion. Exactly opposite of what he deserved. And in salvation, we are also getting exactly opposite of what we deserve. Exactly opposite. It was us deserving that. And Jesus took that so we can be restored. that's our only hope, that Jesus restored us is our only hope. That was Peter's only hope. That's the big difference between Judas and Peter. Peter, in his bitter weeping, was again at the mercy of Jesus and understood that his sin, that he was deep in was exactly why Jesus would die. That Jesus would die for him. Like, that's true repentance. That's true repentance is throwing yourself back at the mercy of Jesus. Not thinking we're strong enough to move past, but throwing ourselves back at the mercy of Jesus because we're desperately in need of him in repentance just as we were in salvation. Like, true repentance is not knowing we're sinners. True repentance is not weeping over our sin. True repentance is being grieved into repenting, which leads to salvation. That's exactly what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read just a couple verses from 2 Corinthians. Paul, as he's writing to them, he says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Grief produces repentance, which leads to salvation. But it's again throwing ourselves back at the mercy of Jesus. It's trusting that God is going to restore you no matter what your sin is. Trusting that He alone is going to do that. Like as we, as we move into a time of response here, I just, if you're struggling with sin. Which I dare to say is each and every one of us. If we're struggling with sin, go to Jesus with that. I encourage you, come grab one another. Come grab me. Come grab Dale. Come pull Tanner off stage. I don't care. Grab someone next to you. Say, pray with me. We are in this together. We are one. We are family. Let's do this together as we point one another back to Jesus. But that is our hope, Throwing ourselves at the mercy of Jesus. If you feel stuck in this cycle of trying harder, sinning again, trying harder, trying harder to be good, feeling regret when we sin, in that cycle that doesn't end, throw yourselves at the mercy of Jesus. He's the only one who restores. We don't hide our shame. We don't hide our struggles. Jesus already knows. We're in this together. We're needy, we're broken, but we're in this together. Let's just seek Jesus. Seek mercy that only He can give. Let's pray.